Food Talk with Mike Colomeco has been brought to you by Cento, Calavita, and Wines of Portugal. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Michael Michael's Food Talk here on Heritage Radio Network. Happy post-Thanksgiving. I don't know if I... Was that last week? Whatever. I don't remember. Was that Thanksgiving last week? Was it the week? It was last Thursday. Yeah, we weren't here. I had a good Thanksgiving. It was lots of fun. Thanksgiving great. The kids were home. My well, one of my sons lives at home. The other one came back from New York to be with us. And all of his... All the Kate May kids were back from college. The bars must have been popping um, <laughs> that's what holidays are for kids that age. I want to give a shout out to uh, the folks at Il Buco and Il Buco Elementary. Um, Donna Leonard, she's been around New York a long time, opened Il Buco 20 years ago, 1994, back when Bond Street was so different than it is today. Bond Street was like, I don't know what it was. It was like a little flea-bitten alley that was way too far to be considered the West Village. NYU was its neighbor to the West. The Bowery, its neighbor to the East. There was nothing there. She opened up. A little antique store that served lunch by accident, and they started serving wine. It became a restaurant. Uh, 20 years later, they're just one of my favorite restaurants in the city. Charming, gracious, great food. And now Alimentari, which is literally around the corner on Great Jones, um, recipient of three stars from the New York Times a while ago, a review that must have blown them out of the water. Great, another great restaurant. I have to say, we spent a whole day with them. They do everything in-house, all their breads, one of the very few licensed salumi programs in the city, um, everything from scratch. They make their own prosciutto. They import olive oil from Italy. They've got people in Italy that source stuff. Great ingredients, great food. If you've never been to either of the Il Buco restaurants, I couldn't recommend them more. Today's show is going to be fun. We're going to talk about two things. It's the holidays, right? So let's talk about two things that are kind of germane to the holidays um, or my life any day of the week. Uh, one of them is lobster, and we're really, really lucky to have Steve Train. Captain Steve Train, can I do that? Are you captain? You must be. You have your own boat. Steve Train's fine. If you'd like to say captain, I've got a license. He does. He has his own boat. I know he has a license. <laughs> captain Steve Train of the Wild Irish Rose. He's down from Maine, where that's what he has been doing for a living and his family has for generations. And Ben Pollinger, who's the chef at Oceana. And if you've never been to Oceana, I don't know why not. Um... It's one of the great, great seafood restaurants in New York City. It's really one of my top four any day of the week. I remember, Ben, when Oceana was back in the old Lacine location with that kitchen that leaked when it rained. Oh, yeah. The food was great, and then you moved to that fabulous new spot that Lovano's family invested a ton of money. You moved across the street and down a block to a ginormous space where you've got an amazing kitchen, a great dining room, great, great, great food, and a ginormous lobster tank. I do. You sell a lot of lobsters. Anyway, let's start with Steve. Steve, you know, I, I live in Cape May and I live in Manhattan, and I, I had been a chef all my life. And in 1987, the economy crashed here. October 19th, the stock market went. So all of us that wanted to open our restaurants kind of had to figure out what Plan B was, um, meaning I didn't have any investors. So with what little money I had and my girlfriend at the time had, we we leased and then bought a place in Cape May. So suddenly I was this guy that was working in the summers in Cape May, coming back to Manhattan to work. Cape May is a big commercial fishing port. Big, big, big. After New Bedford, Gloucester, um, it's usually the second or third on the East Coast. 
and I wanted to source stuff directly because I'm from New York and I'm a New York chef, so I would go to the docks every day. And you get to suddenly realize that there are these families out there that generationally fish. Um, and then you get to understand the seasons of what's running, when the banks are open and closed, how, you know, the laws involved. And I really, really just had great admiration and developed great admiration for uh, fishermen and fisherwomen, what they do. Because you guys are kind of like the last pioneers out there. Everyone these days can kind of get to know their farmer at the farmer's market. Everyone can kind of read about their butchers and their herdage this and herdage that. And we can see farms. We can see cattle. We can see pigs roaming and foraging. But you guys are out there. Like, you're out there in the last frontier. Talk about how early you started when your family got in the business. Oh, it depends on who in the family you mean. I mean, uh, my grandfather was a, a fisherman and a lobsterman. My uh, his wife, my grandmother's brothers were fishermen. Um, you know, I've got a lot of cousins. You go multi-generational down one side of the family, and, and, and I don't know where it would stop. I mean, everybody you get to until you get back to the, the European uh, people that came over. When, when they came over from Europe, they, some of them were fishermen. I mean, my, my grandfather's family were fishermen over in, in Europe before they came over. So it it goes a long way back. I mean, my father... My, when my father was a kid, he started out fishing, and it, it, there were tough times, like you said, 87, and in the mid-60s, it was hard fishing. He got out of it, but as soon as he was ready to come back, he got right back into it, lobstering again. And your, the port, your, your, your boat docks on an island, or your boat docks in Portland? You live on an island? I live on an island off the coast of Portland. It's a 45-minute ferry ride. It's about uh, five, six miles off of Portland. There's no bridge. I mean, you ride a ferry, or you ride your own boat, and... This time of year, from now until probably April, I'll keep the boat on the mainland in Portland at the Fish Pier, uh, and I'll fish out of Portland for five or six months, and then I'll be back on the island the rest of the season. I'll still stay home, but when we when we leave, we'll fish. You know, I'll go I'll go to town on say Wednesday night, and we'll sail at four o'clock, four thirty Thursday morning from Portland. We'll fish two days, and then I'll go back home. Talk about the seasonal nature of lobster fisheries. Well, it. It has uh, landings highs and lows based on season. I mean, we don't have a season uh, set by regulation, but we have a season based on uh, we're a very efficient operation as a as a whole. You know, the fishery, we're very good at what we do, and we catch a lot of the new lobsters that are within that legal size range every year. And so we wait for that shed, and then we chase it. You know, that as the water warms, the, the, the lobsters in the shallow water will shed first, and then... As it cools, the deeper depths are still getting a little warmer. Uh, like when some of the places we fish 50, 60 fathom of water off of Cape Elizabeth, uh, that hits its high temperature in December and January and the bottom. Hits the high temperature at the bottom. We've had, we've had uh, uh, thermometers down there recording temperature, and they'll hit the high temperature at, at depth. So that, that's when they're shedding there. They, they find that comfortable zone when they want to shed. And, and like I said, we're pretty efficient. Uh, and so we're fishing on that newer shell lobster. We still catch a lot of the old shells, and we still catch a lot of the firmest shells. But as a fishery, we chase that shed off working on the, the new product every year. And this is like generational knowledge, where to go, what the bottom's like, where you think they're running. There's a lot of generational knowledge. There's a lot of shared knowledge. But, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of working together, too. You know, with, as, with as independent as we are, right. like you said, you know, you, you know your farmer, and you know right. who's bringing this. 
I'm sure when a farmer has a, a good year, they're happy about it, and it, it, you know, and, and everyone says, "Wow, look what look what his field did this year." But when a when a fisherman has a good week or a good year, he doesn't want anyone to know. <laughs> so you've got a few close friends you might try to give a hand to, or if you're lucky, a friend of yours is doing well, and he'll he'll say you might want to come this way a little bit. But as a whole, you don't want anyone to know. Yeah, it's not so different than scallops. I mean, it's my guys did scallop. Cape May is a big scalloping port, a lot of licenses. And, um, you know, where those scallops are at the different times of the year is kind of proprietary. The boats go out, whatever, and they come back. And, you know, if you're back seven days with your X amount of tons, Good for you. Where were you? Well, you know, <laughs> talk about how it's done because I want. I love the mechanics. I mean, people. Again, I think what you guys do is so amazing because you supply all of. I'm, well, I don't want to get into that topic of how America eats eighty five percent of the fish that we eat imported. I don't want to go there. We've talked about that on the show before, which drives me nuts. But but you guys. I mean, a lot of the fish that America eats, especially the America that I know, comes through your boats, off your boats, across the docks. I always like to hear the mechanics of how how it works. So you leave at 4 in the morning. You chug out to areas where you think there's going to be activity on the floor. You've got pots. You've got bait. Then fill me in. Well, you know, we'll, we'll take our bait the night before. Or we'll take our bait the morning we leave, and then we steam. And um, In the summertime, uh, I'll haul two trawls, which would be six to eight traps tied with a buoy on each end. Uh, before the engine comes up to temperature because we're that close to home. And this time of year, I'll steam two, two and a half hours before I start working and actually hauling gear aboard. And, you know, you, you haul up, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 fathom a buoy line before you see the first trap. And then you, you get the first trap aboard, you open it, you pick it, you bait it, you measure every lobster as it comes aboard. Uh, we've got a lot of safeguards in our fishery um, to maintain the health of the resource. So, you know, we, the, the trap is designed to let the smallest lobsters out. The regulations, at least in Maine, are also in place that we have to check the lobster not just for the slot size, you know, to make sure it's the legal size between the maximum right. and the minimum, but we also have to check to make sure the lobster doesn't have eggs on right. it and that make sure there's not a notch in the tail that means one day it did have eggs on it and it's a proven breeder. So we've got they those... They go back in. They go back in, too, yes. Uh, so we have to check every lobster that comes aboard the boat. Uh, frequently, we throw back 10 to 15 times as much as we keep every single day. And that's just part of the normal operation, which is why there's something there every day we go back out. Some days not so much, but some days there's, you know, some days are good. What's the minimum slot size that you can keep? Three and a quarter inch from the back of the eye socket to the uh, top of the shell before you reach the tail. And that's what? the area one size limit, which is coastal uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. Roughly, what would the weight of that lobster be? Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to get that lobster under a pound, although right. it's possible. Right. You know, you get some of those skinny ones, but they're they're going to be a pound and an eighth, a uh, pound and, you know, three-sixteenths. That's what I remember when I was in and the, that's the ones chef that just buying. Make, I mean, we would buy right. chicks. We'd buy the lobsters that were a pound, a pound and a quarter. That was, I think we used to call them chick lobsters. That was the right. term we used. Well, the chicks used to be very popular because, you know, if you're going to run a two or three lobster special, you can keep your cost of goods down by, and put three small lobsters on a plate. <laughs> hey, <laughs> trying to make a living here. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So weren't there how, – how does the pricing go? Correct me if I'm wrong, but in my sort of recent memory, which in my case can be 
a long span of time. There was a time when the lobster prices were depressed, when it was really tough for the fishermen to think, why am I even going out? Was that like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Or is that just cyclical and it happens? I think that was July. <laughs> um, no, it's cyclical. You know, I mean, we had that, uh, uh, the, the, the banking collapse a few years ago, and our prices dropped so much that you know, we didn't know if it was worth going. Uh, but you kept thinking, well, it's going to come back, and the price is going to come back. I mean, our prices dropped dramatically about six years ago to the point that it was marginal to go. But unlike uh, some of the other fisheries where if you don't go, then when the price comes back, you hear the prices up, you can go out and catch them. If you didn't go out and bait your traps, then you've got to go after the price comes and spend all this time baiting your traps before you catch anything too. So, you know, the trap fishery... Uh, kind of requires you to go out and stay on top of things even when it's not that good. Now, if you see a long run of, of a depressed price, you just won't go. You'll take your gear up and wait. Yeah, because the price of fuel, the price of time, it's just there's no point. And what was that number? Was it under $5 a pound? I just, I'm just i trying to remember what the heck it was on the wholesale level, what it, you were getting. And if this is like proprietary information, don't tell me. It was under $2 a pound. Under $2 boat. a pound. Insane, which is just like, give me a break. That's like junk protein price. Well, and the bait didn't go down. The fuel didn't go down. So, right. you know, it gets to the point, uh, and I can't speak for everybody, but, I mean, uh, a large portion of the industry, it costs you $600 to leave the leave the dock in the morning. Right. I mean, that when you're gone, you've got to get a crate of two of lobsters before you start making money. And the crew on a boat like yours is you plus one, you plus two? Yes, uh, me plus one or me plus two. It depends on the time of year. The weather and who's available. I, I try to keep one regular guy, um, and we'll hire on an extra one. Uh, sometimes one of my kids will go with me, especially in the summertime. Uh, or this time of year when the weather's going to be a little iffy and we know we want to get through all the gear in two days because we've only got a two-day window of weather and we're probably going to have five days of weather where we can't go, we'll bring a second person, a third person for the boat, second deckhand, uh, to make so sure we get through the gear. Right, right. And what's the bait? What are you putting in the traps? I'm using straight herring. Uh, people are using redfish. Um, people are using menhaden. Yeah. Uh, we call them pogies. I right. think down to the uh, west of they call them bunker. Bunker. That's what we call them in uh, Jersey. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's people using other other fish, too. I mean, we use a lot of haddock racks. And uh, used to use cod racks if they're available. There's not so many right now. Uh, but haddock racks and... Uh, uh, dabs, uh, gray sole, and whatever's cut out of the fish houses right. will come out and get right. baited on. Right, right. My fish purveyor on their way back to Maine, my, my lobster purveyor on their way back to Maine to go pick them up, stops at the fish market up in the Bronx picks up and stuff. picks up right. sh- cod racks, hake right. racks, things right. like that. And when we say and racks, we're talking about the, the skeletal remains of filleted fish, for those of you right. that aren't aware of what a rack is. Yeah. Which is their ma- natural diet. Else. You know, it's... Right. Uh, so it's kind of nice that we can put that back in, let them do it, instead of put it in a landfill somewhere. Right. It's funny. You know, lobsters are funny, too, because historically, I remember reading about them. It's all like, sort of like a food geek that if you go back a hundred and some years, they were not that popular. They were prisoners were being fed lobsters. All this mythology, like lobsters were considered. They were so abundant and so cheap that it wasn't considered like decent food. And now it's, you know, every, like lobster on the menu. is like It's a, a luxury item. Yeah, it's a luxury item. How old are your kids? Um, well, I've got one that's a senior in high school. She's 17. I have one that turned 14 last week. Interested in fisheries? They're interested. Uh, their level of commitment to it is 
Well, uh, not quite there. They're 15 and 16 <laughs> years old. Because I know it's funny. I mean, I know, again, I know kids in K-May who who grew up whose parents were captains, Scallopman basically, um, and other others with bigger boats that were sort of multi, you know, boats that could do multi-catches. And, um, you know, the kids sort of got out of high school and kicked it around and thought about college and then you know, looked at college, looked at the world out there, and then looked at what their parents did and thought, you know, let me get my captain's license. This is, some, this is a way of life that we've done. This is something we can do. I know there's always work. It's not easy. Um, but it's interesting. It's, so who knows? Knock on wood, maybe not so much. But it's interesting to see these kids taking over. They've uh, both had the lobster licenses. They've got their own traps. My oldest one had her own boat for a while. Uh, and what she, she has a love of the industry and a love of the resource. But what she wants to do instead of actually at this point, at mm-hmm. 17, uh, is work towards the environmental side of it. She wants to go to college for environmental science and, and policy, and she wants to get involved more in the management of our industry than the harvest of the resource. Sounds like win-win to me. Smart girl. Where's your? Is there a competition that drives your prices? I mean, is there a Canadian maritime fisheries that's a big, beastie thing that you're competing against, or is it just you're all kind of in this thing together? I think it depends on who you talk to and who you think the competition is. Um, I think the Maine lobster is, is the best lobster on the market, but I'm a Maine lobsterman. But I do know that our regulations and rules are pretty stringent, and I think we've done an awful lot to protect our resource, and I think that you know that means a lot to me. Uh, do we compete with a Canadian lobster or a Prince Edward Island lobster? Yes. Do we compete with... With uh, a lobster from Florida or California, probably on the world market, we do. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, you guys are in the restaurant business. When it comes to seafood or protein from from the ocean, we probably compete with shrimp and swordfish and other things too. But uh, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't think Maine lobster has any competition. <laughs> Spoken by a true lobster man. So, and the fisheries, in terms of the annual catch and sustainability, it's there. Yeah, uh, right now, and we may have had some favorable environmental conditions to help us out, but right now we've got a very sustainable fishery. We've got a growing population. What we're harvesting is like taking the interest instead of taking the principal. I mean, we're leaving a ton of products on bottom. It sounds like it. If you're tossing that many back and letting them reproduce and tossing the reproductive females back, the females with eggs back, I mean, that's, that's the idea. Yeah, and most of the rules we have in the industry, and maybe it's one of the reasons it works, is most of the rules we have in the industry, whether it's fence size, trap limits, minimum size, details, they came from industry. Maybe not 100%, but they came from industry. From within. And the industry supports the rules we're working under, and that's what makes it work. Well, you guys do great work. Um, ben, just to switch gears because you've been sitting here being quiet for so long. <laughs> Talk, so you've got – how many lobsters are in your lobster tank? You've got this ginormous lobster tank at Oceana, as I remember. Yes, this lobster tank is two levels, six different compartments, and – I think fully loaded could probably hold around 450 pounds of lobster. And that's just for lobster that I sell as a a la carte lobster, you know, a steamed lobster, a broiled lobster, or a lobster stuffed with crab meat. That doesn't even count what I don't put into the tank because I'm processing it the day that I get it for other lobster dishes or lobster sandwiches or lobster salads that I bring in, I'd have to say, 
a thousand pounds a week or that's my more. next question you bring in a thousand pounds of lobster a week at least one restaurant in manhattan at least it's not bad. at least i mean maine lobster is selling itself i've been using exclusively maine lobster for over five and a half years now because it's got great flavor and it's consistent in quality and it's just a fantastic product that i've got any given time besides the lobsters in the lobster tank and you know that's such a visible thing in the dining room you know we've got this semi-open kitchen and the lobster tank is literally like the half wall that right. separates the dining room but besides the lobsters in the tank i've got at lunch a lobster sandwich a lobster salad we've got a favorite menu item on the is uh the general zao's lobster I didn't you know, know you had that on the menu. Is Everybody's had. Is that new? It's about a year. Been about a year. It's I can't. New. It's I new. can't I get it off the menu now. You know, everybody's had General Zhao's chicken, and General Zhao's lobster. It's uh, it's kind of funny, but it's one of the top sellers on the menu, and I've got the recipe for it in my new uh, cookbook, School of Fish. Oh, by the way, he has a new cookbook out called School of Fish. Great guy. I mean, it's got to be. Yeah, I know you're wrong with Patrick about the book, so we didn't cover it because. You know, yeah. one one host per subject no, no, no. is good There's enough. There's plenty of uh, plenty of recipes from Maine Lobster in the book. Um, Steve, talk to me about the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. What they do? I'm curious because you were you were the president at one point, or the chairman, or the. No, I'm just a member. A member, okay. I am. Uh, there are uh, the states on the East Coast uh, that belong to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which will ASMFC uh, manage the uh, fisheries along the coast that are primarily harvested or, or in large part harvested in state waters but migrate between the states and move offshore. So we manage, uh, uh, we manage lobster. Um, and it's done with uh, three members from each state. And you have one vote for the state, so you have to caucus amongst yourself and, and, and figure out how you're going to vote. And then the states vote to manage the species. I mean, we, we've... Uh, uh, we've managed Maine lobster because it's area one, uh, but we've just done uh, implemented some new rules for uh, southern New England lobster that just went in into effect. Uh, we manage other species like uh, uh, blackback, uh, uh, which is flounder. Uh, winter flounder. I love those flounder. They're real uh, oily. It's one of my favorite. Whenever I see them in the Cape May market, I buy those things. It's funny. Our, our people down there don't like them, and the fisher guys now, they'll text me. Mike, we got blackbacks in from New Bedford, wherever they're from. You, you know them, Ben? Yeah, it's a great fish. It's a great fish. It's oily. It's delicious. It's a weird flounder, but I love them. Anyway, keep going. I no, it's my favorite flatfish. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, we all agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we manage Menhaden. Mm. Uh, we manage striped bass. Uh, we manage northern shrimp. Uh, we manage, um, I mean, I, I haven't got the list with me right now. Uh, but we manage dogfish, horseshoe crab, herring, uh, and uh, most of the fish that we manage is either rebuilt or rebuilding. We've got a, a, a block on a problem with a couple of them. Uh, I'm not sure it's mismanagement or overfishing as much as environmental change. Striper? Um, striper, I'm not, I'm not sure where that is. I mean, the... Uh, yeah, none of us are, but we've seen it drop off. It's been a rough couple of years. Yeah. I'm not sure where if I want to be buying the it. The commercial for a while. harvest has remained stable because they were on strict quotas, so they didn't increase their harvest during the increased years of availability. But, but the sport. Uh, 
the the recreational harvest yeah. increased, but there was more available, and now it's decreasing. And you know, we we the fishery was closed years ago because it was in such bad shape. So the question becomes, you know, did we reach a point where we're we're beyond uh, what was normal, or was was what we had in two thousand normal, and we want to bring that back? I think it's important for us to continue to put as many fish back in the ocean as possible, and allow it to, uh, to allow it that we can continue having like an interest-only fishery on everything. Yeah, well. Uh, and it's a hard compromise sometimes when some states think that there's so much of that right. fish there that right. why are we cutting it back? That's the problem. I mean, a, a striper is a great example because it runs up the coast and you're looking at a half a dozen, ten states where it is – every state has their own piecemeal law. I mean, New Jersey, you can't sell it wholesale. You right. can't sell it retail. Right. And yet the commercial fisheries is vibrant, although there's two fish – theoretically, two fish per fisherman on the water in any boat that you have with a 28-inch limit to, to the first caught fish. Um Back to lobstering. Is is there any any bycatch whatsoever? Because I remember we had pot boats down in Cape May. Believe it or not, we have lobsters down off South Jersey, not Maine lobsters, Jersey lobsters. And I remember the, some of the bycatch would be like totog because I would get lobster fishermen just selling me bycatch off their boat because they found them in trapped. Do, do you have any bycatch whatsoever? We have occasional bycatch. I mean, your definition of bycatch can change. A bycatch is anything you throw back. So the, the smaller lobsters, the seed lobsters, mm. of course, they're bycatch. But you know, will we see an occasional cusk? Yeah. Uh, we do, and that's a fish that suffers barotrauma, but we've discovered that if we put that fish back in the front head of the trap, uh, we can bring that, when we set that trap back, we can bring that fish back down to one atmosphere. It will the barot- it will overcome the barotrauma, and we just, hopefully it swims out. We can do that with almost any any of the species we catch. So even though we have bycatch of some fin fish, we have bycatch of, of crabs, some of them are, are bycatch we can keep, like the Jonah crab and the, uh, the peaky toed crab. Um, most of the bycatch we keep, whether it's something we're going to sell or not, goes back overboard alive. And the stuff with barotrauma, we're working on those to find a way to get them back over alive. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very clean fishery. The percentage yeah. of bycatch is minimal compared yeah. to most fisheries. Correct. Uh, but uh, even the stuff we do catch, it's nice to be in a fishery where the stuff we catch we don't want we can put back in the ocean. And why do we think, you know, Ben, you, can, you both answer this. We talk about terroir in everything these days, whether we're talking about wine or olives or pork or, you know, anything. It seems to matter how you live, what you ate, what was atmospherically around you will, to some extent, determine how you taste. What is it about Maine, the Maine waters and Maine lobster that makes them so special? Well, I've called it for a long time, you know, based on terroir, I've called it meroir. You know, playing on mer, the French word for sea. I, I'm with you, bro. You know, the meroir. Like oysters. I, I mean, they're a great example. Sure. All, all the oysters on these coasts are different. virginicus oysters, and yet they taste all different. I think it's the the water, the minerals. I think it's probably remnants of glacial, you know, glacial receding, and, you know, what's what's in there that's feeding the fish that the lobsters are eating. And just consistently, it's sweet, great taste in lobster. And, you know, if I've got, you know, we were, Steve and I were talking before about what we ship, where generally because of uh, shipping to keep it alive, we're getting the harder shell lobsters, not as sweet as the soft shell lobsters. They're a fantastic product. But the hard shell lobsters are full, plump. I, I do to ensure that I'm getting... A good product. I do regular yield tests where I'll 
you know, weigh out a lobster to the gram in the shell live, then right. we'll cook it and we'll take all the meat out and we'll weigh the clean meat to make sure I'm getting a good ratio and I'm consistently getting an excellent ratio of meat that I didn't get from other lobsters before. And I know this may sound geeky and off on a tangent, but I remember hearing this or reading it. Anything about food, I kind of try and remember, but I'm kind of special ed, so I'm not sure if I remembered it right. But <laughs> lobster are unusual in the – well, not unusual. Like some some fish species that are old, sharks another example, they, they've been around so long. Horseshoe crabs probably another one. It's been around forever. Millions. That evolution-wise, they're almost impervious to disease. Lobsters live a hell of a long time. They do, and they just – keep getting bigger and bigger they uh, i don't know what the terminal malt is for a lobster but uh, you know terminal malt doesn't mean that they're they're done living it just means they're done shedding and we've got we've seen some very very old lobsters uh, we don't see them in our traps because they're not designed to catch them but right. the draggers will get them right um but uh, they live a long time and and the ones in maine mature somewhere between six six years old and seven years old uh, and we don't catch them until they're beyond that age as a whole, as a rule. Some parts of the state where the water's a little colder, they might not quite be there. So, yeah, they live a long time, and, and we're, trying to, we're trying to get as many of them to that age as possible, but I want to catch as many of them on the way by as I can. <laughs> well, thanks. You know, we could go on. I, I could do this for hours, but I have to shift gears here because... <laughs> listenable radio you know you have to, people's attention spans vary but thanks so much for coming down we tried to get you down earlier and sorry about the email confusion today it was pretty hysterical um but yeah the pleasure thanks for coming down thanks for doing what you do and all you fishermen and women that go out there um on a nice glassy flat summer day i'm sure it's paradise uh but when when the ocean gets up and the wind's blowing and the sea's 15 20 25 feet and the ocean temps are not much you know above 30 it's it's tough work that you all do and um big appreciation from all of us to take advantage of what you're doing sitting down cozily in restaurants and ordering this great protein and getting it thanks for what you do well i'm glad you sit down and order it in restaurants but if you'd like to come out and go out with me whether it's a sunny warm july day or or tomorrow uh i think it's going to be uh, 16 when we leave the dock you're welcome to i'd love to have a sunny warm july yeah. day <laughs> and ben Pollinger, congratulations on the book one more time Name of the book. thank you School of Fish. School of Fish. Ben Pollinger, a chef at Oceana, one of America's one of America's and New York's great seafood restaurants. Thank you both for coming into Food Talk. We'll be back right after this with Champagne Talk for the next half hour. That'll be fun too.
So if you want to make a great tomato sauce, where do you start? You start with great canned tomatoes. And what are the best? What's the gold standard? What are the best Italian restaurants use, you think? San Marzano tomatoes from southern Italy. You know, I've heard of San Marzano tomatoes, loved them, heard the whole legend thing, knew they were delicious, but I wanted to go visit the region. So sometime back, I don't know, 06, 07, we went to San Marzano in the middle of the packing season in August. They've got a really long growing season. Starts early spring, April, May, and runs all the way through October because the weather down there is beautiful. You're along the coastline of uh, Naples there in the shadows of Mount Vesuvius. And these are really small family farms, really small, like a half an acre, an acre apiece. And that's how they make a living is harvesting these tomatoes. But what makes them great is the typicity of everything, the style of the tomato. It's kind of a long tomato with a really thin skin, super fleshy, super sweet tasting off the vine. Uh, we can Cento San Marzano tomatoes in the prime of the season, which is August. They just slow production down, handpick everything. Those little basil leaves, yeah, they're all put in there by hand as well. Uh, it is the best canned tomato I've ever had, and you're going to love them too. There's a reason chefs love these things. They're San Marzano authorized from the beginning. The factory gets inspected every year. Hey, you want to make great tomato sauce at home? Start with great tomatoes. Cento San Marzano. That's what I use. Hey, folks, Mike Calameco here. Years back when I had my own restaurant, I had to figure out what kind of oils to use, you know, try to make money in the restaurant business. So, uh, you know, the most expensive oil wasn't the choice, but I had to use an oil that was great, an oil that I would use at home and also for my customers. Came upon Colavita olive oil, um, which to this day still stands head and shoulders above everybody in that extra virgin category in the supermarket shelves. So much of the extra virgin category is dominated by labels that sound like they're Italian. You know, they end with an O or something like that. But the truth is they're tank farm blends that come out of Italy, but what's in the jar or the can is oils from all over the world that are just bought on price. It's commodity oils. Uh, Colavita is the only one that's an extra virgin that's 100% Italian origin traceable. It's a great company. They really built their brand on the U.S. market. They get the U.S. market. So if you're looking for a super extra virgin olive oil, use the one that I've been using for years on my table at home and in my restaurants, wherever I was hanging my chef's toque, and that would be Colavita extra virgin. True Italian, great oil. So my first trip to Portugal was 2013. It was a wine trip. A bunch of us flew over and toured the country top to bottom. Fell in love with the place. The food, the wine, the scenery, everything. Had to come back, which I did in 14, to film. And this time, eight days in country, top to bottom again. Food, wine, surfing, what's not to love? If you've never been to Portugal, it's an extraordinary place. Buffered on one side by the Atlantic Ocean, you've got great seafood, great wines growing in all those regions. You go a little inland, you've got more great more great food, incredible wine country. Of course, Port is the birthplace of Port's up the Douro. But my takeaway was, I thought I'd had a lot of varietals. Like I keep a list of 130, 135 varietals I've had over my life. Portugal has 250 of its own indigenous wine varietals. And they're killer good. A lot of them growing there for centuries. It has some of the oldest viticulture in Europe. Uh, the sparkling wines from the Bihada, the great reds coming down south from those regions. The, uh, what's not to love? Crisp whites, beautiful full-bodied reds, port wine, sparkling wine. So if you're not familiar with the wines of Portugal, next time you spot by at your local wine store, ask about them. I love them. I'm drinking a lot of them these days, and I think you will too. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of 
describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, folks. Welcome back to Food Talk. I've got Michelle DeFeo, president president of Laurent Perrier USA. And if you drink champagne, that might ring a bell. They've been around for a little while. It's, um, it's, they're newish, uh, founded in 1812. Um, great old champagne family. So we have wine guests on. We have sommeliers on. You've heard me many times, and I'll keep repeating it because I'm kind of on a mission, as are a lot of us in this space of wine and food, in a mission to get the... Um, our audience, the American public, to look at champagne as something other than a beverage that's something you drink in December and New Year's Eve or relegated to toasts before dinner with canapes and see it more for what it really is, which is wine that works with food. So hopefully today we're going to sort of go in there and bore down and talk about it. Um, So so we don't have to do this, and you don't have to do this on air, on mic. Um, there's a great distinction between what champagne is and what some other sparkling beverages are. And I know people always love to set this sort of champagne versus cava, champagne versus Prosecco. I'll save you the time. They're very different. The way they're made is different. The way the bubbles are introduced is different. Everything about them is different. There's nothing wrong with cava or Prosecco. They're great. They're inexpensive. They're wonderful, user-friendly stuff. They're not champagne. Having said that... Uh, the French are the French, and you can only call champagne champagne if it comes from a region and is made a certain way. Having said that, there are other places that make champagne in the exact same way in France, like Cremant and Limoux, like the Loire Valley, um, like the Birada of Portugal, where I just was. So it can be done elsewhere. You just can't call it champagne. But let's talk about champagne today um, for what it is. Lively, refreshing, elegant, polished. And one of the great food pairing wines, because what are the grapes? We're talking about three grapes that go into champagne, and the, and they are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. Right. So you're like, oh, <laughs> why why would champagne work with food? I know those. Do you like oh oh Chardonnay, oh Pinot Noir? Oh gee, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. So talk about let's sort of bore back. Let's talk about how champagne's made because it's kind of confusing to people that it starts its life. Grapes are harvested, mm-hmm. and it becomes a still wine. Exactly. Then what do. happens? And I know the answer to this, but I want it in your words. So there are these five or six things that happen after the fact mm-hmm. that are this method champignoise that some pl- parts were invented by accident, some on purpose. There was a guy named, famous guy named Dom Perignon who might have had something to do with it, but that's also a brand now. But explain to us, because I just think it's really interesting how... And why? There's a fair amount of steps and there's time, and all of this is germane to the actual flavor. So talk about Mm -hmm. the steps involved. So we have Chardonnay, we have Pinot Noir, we have Pinot Meunier that we've now turned into still wine. Then what? 
Well, I'd actually like to kind of take a step back in that still wine production process and just kind of, you know, we have to think about how do you make grapes into wine? And essentially, it's a chemical process by which yeast that's present on the grape skins eats the sugar that's present on the grape pulp and the juice inside. The byproduct, that's alcoholic fermentation. The byproducts are alcohol and carbon dioxide. So to make a wine, the first thing that you do is you ferment the grapes. So you let, however, all that carbon dioxide escape in that process. So for champagne, the first thing we do is we do that primary fermentation. Yeast eats sugar equals alcohol. The carbon dioxide is allowed to escape into the atmosphere because the fermentation occurs in tanks, just like with still wines. Or, you know, in barrels for some houses. For us, it's exclusively in stainless steel tanks. So then basically all we do in champagne, to simplify it, is we replicate that process. But the second time around, we let the yeast, which we've added back in, eat more sugar, which we've also added back in for the most part. But then the next time, so we get the alcohol, but we retain that carbon dioxide by sealing that mixture, the still wine, the yeast, and the sugar mixture. We seal it in the bottle with a crown cap, kind of like an old Coke bottle. And we retain the carbon dioxide within that bottle, and it's forced to dissolve into the solution. And the longer that you let it do that, the more uh, developed the flavors and the bubblier generally it's going to be. And that length can vary depending on the house, on the style, of anywhere between one year and three, four, five, or keep going. Absolutely. And more... Even more importantly, now you have these wines that are in these. I, I'm not going to try and pronounce the names of those racks that are the 45 degree angle. What's the name and what's the, the, the well, the riddling racks, riddling the racks, racks. If you'd like Thank to you. get the fancy, Thank one. You. Thank you. They have to be turned every couple of days. Mm-hmm. Turned so someone manually, a, a group of characters is down there turning these, turning these, turning. Is that called tirage? Uh, that's called uh, remouage. Remouage. That's still the riddling. Yeah. Um, Something is magical that's happening in this second fermentation in the bottle because that contact with the lees that's taking mm. place over time is adding this complexity to it. Yes. Talk about that. Yes. Talk about what's going on because I don't want to go into like polymers and malolactic and all uh, the weird geeky stuff. But right, right. when you when you pour a glass of champagne and on the nose you're getting maybe like brulee or toast or these wonderful esters that are coming up, that's part of the contact with the leaves, part of the contact with the yeast. But you talk right. about it. So leaves basically are dead yeast cells. Right. Once the yeast eats the sugar, it uh, the, the the solution will reach a certain level of, uh, of, of alcohol. The yeast cells will die, basically, and they will settle to the bottom of the bottle. And they basically macerate. They stay in contact with the wine. And that process, which is called autolysis, is basically the, the process of the, the liquid, the, the, the wine, the champagne, getting infused with the taste of the lees in, in the simplest version. Which and, adds complexity oh, and all sure. of these beautiful notes on the nose and in the mouth. Yeah, And it sounds kind of gross to say dead yeast cells, but when you think about, well, what is yeast? <laughs> Where do we see yeast? Some of the descriptors that we start using for champagne, some of my favorite descriptors, Brioche, right, uh, right. buttery, you know, a, a certain butteriness could come from ML, but but also from the lees. Uh, ML's malolactic, ML's code malolactic, sorry. So it's just, that's the, <laughs> the, 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 the conversion of malic yeah. acid, lactic acid to malic, I always get this backwards. L- uh, malic uh, to lactic. Lactic malic. Malic to lactic. Mac- malic to lactic, Mal- which is apple, yes. in, all, in almost all <laughs> wines, that fermentation takes place in the bottle, and it's known as ML among wine geeks, but it keeps going. So there's things called riddling, which is they turned every two days. And then, depending on the style of the house, how they choose to do it, again, it could, the longer it's left on that yeast with those leaves present, it, I think it just adds complexity to the finished product. Then, 
How do we get sure. that thing out of there? Because now this well, thing's kind of funky looking. You pull that bottle out, sure. it's got this little gross kind of snotty looking stuff down that mm-hmm. you've been turning. It's been sitting by that Coke bottle top. Then there comes, there's come this genius idea of how we get this out. Right. So basically we have to somehow filter it without getting the bubble, releasing the bubbles. So uh, the process was developed to slowly turn it until it was basically entirely upside down. And then once the bottle is upside down, it's passed through a freezing brine solution. And within seconds, the neck of the bottle is actually frozen into what I would call a, a yeast sickle, basically. Basically. So then this guy that has the coolest job in the world basically yeah. manages this part of the uh, of the production line that is the disgorgement right. machine. Right. And all day long, he just sits there and makes sure that, that everything disgorges properly. And disgorging is the process of getting that yeast sickle out of the neck of the bottle. So this machine takes off the crown caps and you just hear all day long... And then, uh, of course, once that happens, you're left with a perfectly clear champagne that's still very, very bubbly. But you're also left with an, with an empty neck of the bottle. Right. So then the question becomes, well, what do you put in there? Right. And that is basically, that's the, the, the dosage. That's the level of sugar and wine and sometimes a little yeast that we put in at the very end of the process. And that will define the ultimate sweetness of the finished product. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Simple. I, People yeah. ask why champagne's expensive, and then we go through how they make it. I was it, trying like... to make this easy and simple, and I'm not sure I did, but I hope I did for those of you, because it is... It's a, we're going to drink some. So, so um, your house offers a demi-sec, which is the sweetest one that you make. A demi-sec is half dry. It would be yes. kind of appropriate, I think, on the back end of the meal with desserts. or Sure. Um, absolutely. That pairs, is our dessert champagne. It's a dessert champagne. Um, you're... Ultra Brut, you make one of those. Yes, we do. Zero dosage. None no sugar all. in the dosage. None at all. None whatsoever. So that's super crisp, super clean, just like stainless steel, minerally bang. Exactly. Uh, a rosé, and the rosé occurs because now we're seeing Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. We have skin contact. Exactly. Bigger, rounder, days. fuller. And, you know, maybe if you wanted to have a, a the first time you pair champagne with dinner, maybe a rosé wouldn't be a bad idea. Extremely Because it's got those soft tannins. They're, they're present. It's going to work with – it's hold up to food in a, a way that some of the other styles may not quite as well. Uh, and then you have three more – four more. Tell me about them. So let's see. What did the we – The best cobs blended. The grand whatever. We have, we have our Brut Non Vintage. Okay. Uh, okay. And then we have a Vintage 2004, which is – we're actually not a big vintage-reliant house in, at Laurent Perrier. Your last vintage was 2004. Our last vintage was 2004. So we, we make a single vintage very, very rarely. And then we also make something called Grand Siècle, which right. means the great century. And that's our Prestige Cuvée, our top of the line, which is a blend, actually. We're very unique in that we're the only multi-vintage Prestige Cuvée. And we blend wine from three separate vintage years for our, for our top of the line. And then we have that in a vintage version as well, which is called Cuvée Alexandra. Pour some champagne, because All right. I'll be honest with you. That was a mouthful. <laughs> I want to have some champagne. I'm staring at these bottles. Talk about the art of talk about champagne and blending because I think one of the most inter- Michael speaking to the microphone. I think one of the, <laughs> see I see champagne and I just get all bad. Um, there's a lot of blending that goes on in making champagne. I mean, most other wines that I can think of, nearly all of them are released as vintage wines. No one's blending their 2013 Chardonnay with their 2012. But in Champagne, it's germane to what you do. Absolutely. It's, you know, in Champagne, we speak about the blend in terms of vintages and in terms of varietals. So we're, the first Champagne that we're tasting is a blend of all three grapes in Champagne, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, which is a black grape, or red grape, depending on how you look at it. So we, we blend the varietals. 
But then we also blend the years. So champagne, the vast majority of all champagne that's produced is non-vintage. The reason for that is pretty simple. Champagne is a god-awful place, actually, to try to grow grapes for a very long time. <laughs> it was the northern, northerly yeah. most growing climate so in last, the world. It's your last harvest. That's it. Now um, we've got England, but, you know, but so it's, it's very variable, unlike, yeah. let's say, California, which is year after year, you know. So and we started adding sugar to it because the acid was so high because we weren't getting enough sun. So it, it evolved as a non-vintage wine so that we could kind of mitigate the variation from year to year. And we could also have consistent style. And consistency is extremely important in champagne. It means that the bottle of Laurent Perrier non-vintage that you're having now will taste exactly like the bottle that you had 5, 10, 20 years ago. And I should mention, I was in Beaujolais for the Harvest 2005. It was a great year for them. I'm mm. a big fan of Beaujolais Cruz back then. I'm trying to get people to... And Beaujolais is kind of reinventing itself as a serious grape. Um, I, the Cruz are amazing. And one of their concerns with that harvest was, you were the next harvest, and you pay more. And once the champagne phone rang, <laughs> all, the, all the hires that were kind of did this for a living, that had worked their way from the south of France up to Beaujolais, into mm. Burgundy, they were gone once you guys called. So let's talk about You talked about the growing conditions. You are the northernmost part of France for wine growing. Mm-hmm. And you, what, one of the things that informs, we talked about terroir with lobster fish, and we talked about terroir with everything, is you have this really chalky soil that's full of lime. And the, the only other place that I know of, well, there's two places. It, it goes underneath the channel, and it shows up in, in southern England. Sure, in the White Cliffs of Dover. And yeah. also, in, in a strange way, it pops up again in the Armagnac Cognac region, which mm. is why some cognac can be called Champagne Cognac. It was always a question, like, why do they call it Champagne? Because of the soil typicity. Mm. How does that inform the grapes? Because this is a big part of it. Well, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's not even just a component of the soil. The soil itself is pure white. Once you get below, let's say, a couple of feet maximum of topsoil, it is as white as a, as a blank piece of paper. We're actually building a new winery, and we've just excavated a, 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 an area almost the size of like half of a football field. And it is just this glowing white pit. So it is pure chalk. I've seen pictures. It's, it's amazing. You can actually pick some up off the ground, and you can bring it home, and you can write, with the, write on it on a, on a chalkboard. So that, of course, what is limestone? Limestone is a dried-up uh, ocean bed. And that dried up ocean bed is actually made up of years and years. I'm not a geologist. I want to say millions. I could be off by an order of magnitude or two. I don't know. <laughs> if I knew that stuff, I might not be in the booze business. But at any rate, I, I do know that the, the soil itself is actually compressed sea creatures. It's right. compressed constra- crustaceans. So you get this kind of salinity and this, this amazing minerality that you just don't get from other soil types because the roots go so deep. The roots are, are in this, this dried up ocean bed that sometimes, and when we taste the next champagne, which is the Ultra Brut, which is unadulterated without any sugar in it, you really get this kind of fresh sea air in the nose. For which sure. I've seen in other wines. It's amazing. Um, again, my guest is Michelle DeFeo. We're drinking. The lovely, lovely Champagne Sir Laurent Perrier. What was the one we just tasted? Remind me again or remind the audience again? This is our Brut Non-Vintage. We're starting Delicious. out with so our... this is $50, $60 a bottle? Not even. This is $35, $35, $40 a bottle. What would you pair this with? I know what I would, but let me hear it from you. Well, okay. So this is this is our... Honestly, this is our aperitif champagne. This is our most easy drinking. It, but it's got tremendous food versatility. I mean, anything from you know any kind of little canapes, of course, as you just mentioned, that's you know usually where champagne is found. But... Dry hard cheeses, salumi. Sure, I'd even go with sure. white fish, like simple. If you're talking about a little flounder, mm-hmm. just simply sauteed fish. I mean, yep. 
whatever. Well, I love that idea of pairing it with the cheeses and the salumi because that showcases the versatility. Whereas you might say, well, what's the perfect wine for salumi? What's the perfect wine for a hard cheese? Champagne is something that can transcend that and can kind of go with everything that you're going to have on that charcuterie plate. And to be honest with you, like if you want to kind of go pimp one day, like fried chicken with this? Would be oh, great. my gosh. Absolutely. No? Fried, anything fried. Popcorn. Anything fried. Potato chips. Anything. Because in fried food, you've got that kind of little, little bit of residual Absolutely. grease. You've got bubbles here to solve that problem. So I'll put it this way. Anything that you anything you'd pair beer with, think champagne. Mm-hmm. I like that. I and think that's perfect. Minus the hops. All right. Pour the next one. All I'm right. Already done. I'm already done. Now, okay. now you know. So you guys... We have to pour yours into empty glasses. So you do me the honors of opening one. Oh, we're going to hear the pop. And go through Here how to go. open a bottle of Here champagne. So do you know the do you know the trick? It's that time of year. Okay, so of and course we don't have a saber. We're not going to saber here. Uh, not with this plate glass glass window right in front of us. No, I, we are not. Although they stand up and do it at the bar at Pearl and Ash three times a night every night, and I'm like, that is so insane. Are you out of your minds? Uh, they actually, one night asked me if I wanted to. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you get a saber, a bottle of champagne standing on your bar. Do you have liability insurance? Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing, while you're opening that, let's talk mm-hmm. about this because. Um, um, drinking champagne, and again, we're trying to get people to drink more. I love it. I drink it all year long. I love it with the things I just said, um, and I drink it through dinner. I love it if people would get rid of champagne flutes and don't hmm. even think about those little coupes or coupes, whatever they call those silly glasses. I drink champagne out of a white wine glass. I, I couldn't uh, couldn't agree with you more. I don't know where the flute came from and those original silly ones. I mean, those I don't even like cocktails and those things because they're just hard to get to your mouth and not end up with the ball of your chin. But the idea is it has a nose, it has bubbles, it's, it pours perfectly into white wine glass, and it's just like that's the glass to use. Well, the history was that they developed a flute because they wanted something specific for champagne because it was a different wine. And they wanted something that visually you could see it with champagne because you, you maximize the, the verticality of the bubbles. But certainly not the right thing to taste it in. And then, no. of course, the coupes were actually supposedly developed. They were molded on, uh, on yes, Marie Antoinette's breast. That's what they said. So it's, yeah, these, the these were not necessarily uh, to uh, to have the most organoleptic engagement with the with the wine that we could have had. Organoleptic. <laughs> There's a word. I love it. That, we, okay. Engagement. Organoleptic engagement. Okay. There we go. All right. All so right. Yeah, enough of that. Let's make some more of this. Super dry. That's a sound. Yeah. So that's, of course, the worst way to open a bottle of champagne because what I've just done is release a lot of the bubbles that were in this bottle. But there are about 49 million in every bottle. So we have a couple that we can spare. That's actually a number? Well, there, there's been uh, – it's, it's an inexact science – but that's the uh, there was a very reliable study that did find the forty nine million. That was the highest number that I've seen found. So I like that one best. I have to admit. But there are actually six atmospheres of pressure in every bottle. So uh, that's a, that's a lot of carbon dioxide that's been forced into solution. And this the the, the uh, I'm sorry the non vintage brute from Laurent Perrier that we first tasted is aged for three years on the lees. This next wine, which is our non dosage ultra brute, is aged for four years. Now this is. It's a bit mean tasting wines on air, isn't it? When everyone at home is probably not. <laughs> <laughs> at least we're not gurgling. You can, you can hear us sniffing. Yes, in our, no, in our it's, glasses. it's the worst. I know. I, Believe us, it's delicious. It's no, it's really delicious. It's great. And and what's more, it's funny. So now I had my first sip a minute ago, maybe. And it, 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 your saliva glands get activated because there's this wonderful minerality to it. There's this dryness to it. There's this really long, clean finish. And it's just, it's almost screaming for food. It's almost mm, saying to me, mm-hmm. well, I mean, you could sip it, but it kind of wants a response to that dryness. In the same way that on the, f- the opposite side, if you're drinking sort of bigger tannic wines, that they want blood, they want fat. Mm-hmm. They're not, I mean, I don't really drink wine much in and of itself, by itself. It's always, this goes with something I'm going to eat. And I mean, this is just calling for food. 
Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And this particular champagne, the, the Ultra Brut, which is our Brut Nature, which is a category that has no sugar added or has a very small amount of sugar added, although we at LP add absolutely zero sugar to this wine. It is absolutely the, the best expression, unadulterated expression of champagne terroir because you really do taste that salinity and that, that sea air that I was speaking about yeah. earlier. So it's screaming for oysters or caviar, perhaps. Uh, something, you know, on that salty side, that but that brininess, I think, I mean, really oysters is my absolute favorite pairing with the champagne. And, you know, if, if you don't mind, sashimi, sushi. Sure, like, absolutely. I love, like, I, I think when I'm, if money's not an object, I just love, you, know, you think of fatty toro belly, mm-hmm. and I'm not really into the whole wasabi. When I'm eating that, it's just a touch of soy sauce in my mouth. Let the fish speak for itself. I'm not a wasabi freak. Uh, in Nigiri, this is, the wasabi is already applied. I think Americans just eat sushi. Don't get me started with that. The whole thing, <laughs> people mixing wasabi and soy sauce and dipping everything into it. It's like a nasal deke. It's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> but if you have clean fish tasting, especially fatty fish, this is like perfect. And I'm completely, I agree with oysters. I think, I think tomorrow I've got a piece coming out in Snooth where I talk about, shampoo, about wine pairings and oysters. Mm. And I think you guys are in there. Well, not your brand, but your category. It's a... Uh... It's it's the uh, the right thing to drink with oysters, I do think. All right, I'm going to pour this out because we're going to have one more. We're running out of time. Thank oh. you, Stephanie. This was that was delicious. So that's what sixty five seventy a retail. That's about seventy retail. Okay. All Chardonnay. That's actually half Chardonnay, half Pinot Noir. Okay. So there's our there's our blend coming up as well. Now the next wine, if I may, that oh another that, popping sound. Here we another go. Another popping. Another drum roll. I'll, well, let's see. I'll do this one and, the way that it's supposed to be done without the pop. Just. Yes, just that gentle yeah. easing. Yeah, which is, we should talk about, so when you're opening champagne, that actually sort of ease the cork up. Mm-hmm. So you know what it's supposed to sound like. I hope I don't mess it up now. Or what, it's, what it normally sounds like. Here's what it's supposed to sound like. Voila. There we go. There we go. That's it. Keep most of the bubbles in the bottle where Keep we want the them so they can in go the into your glass and into your mouth. Also, in storing champagne, there's a lot of myths out there about storing champagne upright for some reason. I don't know why, but champagne mm. should be stored on its side. Like Absolutely. You it is a wine, wines. as you said very accurately yeah. before. And if you can, if you have a cellar, it loves all wines like to be kept at a steady temperature of, you know, 56, 58 degrees. Sure. And, and we, not have fluctuations. We're into your rosé now. All right. So we spoke about uh, about mixing the varietals. There were all three grapes of champagne in the first oh, bottle, two delicious. of them in the second in this bottle, our rosé, this is very unique. This was, this is 100% Pinot Noir. And to my knowledge, we're the only champagne brand that actually makes a rosé exclusively out of Pinot Noir. It's exclusively from Grand Cru Vineyards, which are vineyards that have been given the 100-point quality rating by the governing body of champagne. And we actually have a special winery in which we make our rosé. The non-vintage rosé category was non-existent until we brought this champagne back out in the 1960s. Mm. And we were kind of laughed at as uh, this is something, how are people ever going to want to drink a non-vintage rosé? It's uh, it's kind of a candy wine. But this is very, very dry. It's, it virtually has no residual sugar. And it's a very serious wine. I kind of, you know, it's 100% Pinot Noir. Yeah, this is... You talk about food pairing. I'm thinking this is Absolutely. across the board. Absolutely. Everything we talked about, everything we talked about, I mean, almost too heavy for some fish to me. For I'd be drinking this not so much with flounder and fluke and maybe with fish that has a little bit more fat content. And now I'm thinking chicken, pork. Um, duck, if I may. Duck, if you if you may, because <laughs> you're going to have fruit probably as a compote with the duck. Um, yes. Even a dish like a, a, a blanquette de veau that's just funny, that you know, rich and unctuous, and then you kind of mm. 
bacon and bacon. No, absolutely. this is really, this would this is a this is a dinner wine. Mm-hmm. Like this to me is kind of like wasted by itself. No question about it. No question about it. It wants it's, food. It's very very versatile and it wants food. I mean, just as Pinot Noir is such a versatile grape, and this is Pinot Noir with this additional treatment and this additional level of finesse that comes from the bubbles, and it's uh, certainly something that is a welcome accompaniment to so many so many dishes. Well, we chewed up another hour. That's crazy. I don't know how we did that, but we managed to do that. Thanks for coming out. And amazing. You've been at this. This was your like your first real job out of college? Pretty much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And oh, and lucky it's girl. I think it's interesting. I think the the you know, champagne is um it's kind of viewed in a, a couple different ways. I'd love to see people drink it more again with food and I it's be great to see the champagne people looking at America. I know you, you were in love with China as whether well, Baudelaire's for a long time it was a huge mm. big market for you guys. I think that was a countervailing duty in China against champagne, which sounds ridiculous to me. But I think the American market's just ripe for this. We have so many great young wine drinkers that are smart. We have wine programs Absolutely. and restaurants now that are crazy. Uh, we have you know a sommelier boom that's nuts, and the for idea sure. of drinking champagne with dinner, drinking it through the meal is just something I can't champion enough. Drink it in white wine glasses. Drink it often. Drink it all year long. It's a great beverage. Thanks for coming out so much. Cheers to that. Cheers to you. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. We, we're going to wrap this one up. You've wasted another hour listening to my Comico's Food Talk and Heritage Radio Network. We have a fundraiser coming up. Listen, contribute. If you like this show and all the other shows that we have, you know, it's kind of like listening to NPR. We don't have a lot of commercials. We have actually none to speak of. Um, and we have a lot of great hosts who are really into what you're into, which is the world of food, wine, the politics around food and wine. So go to our website, send us a couple of bucks, and keep listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>